Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to this episode of the ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, in this episode, I continue my discussion with my good friend and author, Jamie Club. Uh, lots of topics discussed, but we zoom in on self-protection training for children. So I know that anyone who has children or teaches children is going to find this uh, really uh, interesting. Uh, Jamie is the guy who literally wrote the book on this. He's a... Uh, Without, to my mind, the leading expert on this. Uh, I don't think I've come across anyone who thinks about it as, as, as deeply as, as Jamie does and has come up with such a holistic and pragmatic approach to dealing with this issue in an effective and yet age-appropriate way. So I hope you enjoy the, the conversation. Just a little reminder that the mic uh, were mixed slightly wrong, which I'll take responsibility for because it was my fault that I had my own mic set a little bit low. So uh, you need to find the sweet spot between my speaking and Jamie speaking when you, you you listen to this. It's not too worksome and they're close enough, but ju just as a fair warning to make sure you set the volume uh, appropriately. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to uh, myself and Jamie for part two of our conversation. Our intention there was to start discussing common origin myths, and as we got into um, training and other things, uh, I think that the, the point of being uh, sceptical generally applies, and obviously if people are off about the history, that can skew the way in which they view the art and the, the practice now. So uh, one thing that you know we've, we've talked about a few times, Jamie, and I did a uh, forum video on it recently, uh, this idea of the, the common origins myth that only one guy invented the strangle and then everybody else copied it from them. You know, this idea that no one can develop things independently. So I, I get that a lot within when I'm breaking down kata. So, for example, I'll show a hip throw uh, from like Pinan Sandan, for example, uh, and that's recorded in Interman's book and other things. You know, it's been a part of karate for a long time. But because that motion has similarities with judo, people assume it must have originated from judo. So then the question becomes, well, how did that judo or jujitsu technique find its way into the karate and, and we have you know this discussion quite a bit so maybe you could give people some other examples of those kind of things you've seen and yes definitely definitely i mean the common origin myth the problem with um with with their, um any sort of historical problem i, th I think just to just to address that uh, uh you know some people think well um why is history really important you know it, 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 what, what relevance does it have well the the, the 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 problem with bad history is that you start with false premises when you start with mm -hmm. false premises then it, it can lead to other things and i'm not going to do the uh, slippery slope um logical fallacy at the danger of going like that but but uh, definitely, if you start on something as a false premise, then it, it, it's it, you, you're not you're not starting on a good ground anyway. So, if, so. if, I, if I can give a couple of quick examples, yeah. then. so what, one like for example, that the idea of breaking wooden boards was because the samurai used to wear wooden armor, and yes. karate is the art of the peasant class to overthrow their samurai overlords. Yeah, you know, when, when people start thinking like that, it skews the way in which they practice. And, and we've also got you know the, the Shaolin origin temple myth thing. Which, which, which again yeah. brings religion in in a way that it shouldn't or doesn't need to be there. So is that the kind of thing you mean, Jamie? So people, yeah, yeah, abso yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not to commit my own um, co common origin myth, but um, I certainly find that a lot of roads lead back to the Shaolin origin myth. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite quite ironic, I think, in that respect. But uh, and I'm sure it's not the case because it's um, uh, in Western civilization, people, you know, we 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 do, you know, we put a lot of connection to things like um, the Knights Templar, for example, and 
and, and how monkish they all were and uh, the, the, you know their example of armor warrior monks and um and when, when in fact that uh, you know a good percentage of of the, of the knights templar for example uh, were um didn't fight you know and, and a huge amount of it was to do with uh, you know handling the money and the mur- uh, um you know it was uh, yes they had a, an elite um side to them but uh, it, 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 you know that would uh, we haven't got a, a common origin myth, thankfully, um, yet. Um, that that uh, all, all uh, Western knight training um, came from uh, the Knights Templar. But, but 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 that's an example of sort of like how how people will over exaggerate that. And the Shaolin Temple myth has got a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of myth roads that I see going back there. People, ex- I think it starts with that 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 acceptance that. Um, uh, an Indian monk, Bodhidharma, um, brought over um, the teachings of Buddhism to the Shaolin Temple. Buddhism, I think everyone accepts, is already in China, uh, but um, but 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 uh, Bodhidharma reinvigorated the monks with a series of different exercises, um, which a lot of people consider to be um, you know yoga and sort of yogic exercises, which again is another myth in its own right, um, which I'm beginning to see more of. The yoga myth is coming up everywhere. Um, but anyway, that the idea that these yogic exercises and the qigong then created this muscle change classic um this book that 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 was supposedly written by bodhidharma and then that influenced um chinese martial arts um then eventually this whole story of the temple being destroyed and uh the 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 five surviving ancestors going out and teaching their martial arts and them influencing um the rest of china and therefore you know all of China was influenced by the Shaolin Temple, and um, you know most martial arts, at least, came from the Shaolin Temple. Their origins are there, which eventually influenced the, Uka, uh, the Okinawans, which then uh, turned it into karate. Um, and, uh, and, the, and again, I see a lot of roots into that. Um, and then the idea then that uh, just about you know most martial arts you know from then on throughout Asia were then influenced by the Chinese martial arts and because it's you know because it's pretty much in its geographical position I'm seeing a lot of people you know say that I see it all it all came back from China people are saying and it all came from the Shaolin Temple um, completely neglecting the idea that uh, China was um, had, had some pretty good military actually <laughs> for a, for a good amount of its time you know somehow I think that empire you know was expanded by a lot of military training and uh, that didn't have a lot to do with the, the Shaolin Temple, um, but then you have uh, you know people then build on that. So you get uh, this ex- this idea that this acceptance that everything came from the Shaolin Temple, everything came from China, um, that which influenced all of Asia. You know that that Muay Thai you know has got its roots all the way back to, to China. That uh, uh, the, the Jiu Jitsu's um, roots all, all all went back to the Chinese wrestling systems that came from the Shaolin Temple and therefore influenced judo. Um, you, you know you, you have that part of it. Um, and then you have other people saying, well, okay, well let's let, let's try and beat that. So now you've got uh, Kaliparit in, in in India. You know the oldest martial art. This is the real mother of martial arts. Why? Because it came from India. And where did Bodhidharma come from? He came from India. Therefore, the Indian martial arts. The Indians were the first. We, they, you know, and you know, and they can do things like they can show how how old Indian civilization is. Therefore, it makes sense that we came up with the first martial arts. I, I, then, I just even build on that, Jamie. I had a guy suggest to me this week that all the martial arts started from Egypt. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, no, I've heard that one. Yeah, I, I think I've addressed that one in bullshit, too. How yeah. about Russia? Well, I've had Russia. Yeah, this is... This is <laughs> well, I mean, for the, 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 although, and again, if you pick up pretty much any karate book, the, yeah. the, these myths will be... Uh, this is the ultimate origins of, of, of karate. It's repeated. But it's worth while people understanding that historically that's absolutely debunked. That there was, yes. there was no uh, evidence for this at all. It can be traced back to a forged document in the 15th century. 
the muscle change classic, that, exactly, that, which we're discussing. Exactly, which has been widely debunked. Uh, the, the idea that, uh, as well, as I remember, there was a, a fictional uh, series based upon that. And then, of course, you've got the Kung Fu TV series during the 1970s. We'll have added to it in its own way as well. But it, it was just, there's no evidence for it at all. But I, I found people so reluctant to give that up. You know, yeah, and, that history. and they build so much on it. I mean, this, this is just it, because then I also then find it, you then find it in a lot of, and, and remember, this is everywhere. This, this goes into all the modern martial arts. They, they all believe the same thing as well. The Russian thing was an interesting new one. Where they said, well, actually, because if you look at, you know, a lot of the Sistema stuff and and uh, and, and uh, Two Degree Sambo, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I, mean, I certainly noticed it when I did a little bit of, a little, little bit of, of Sistema, you know, and all these, you know, the wrist locks and stuff that was very much close to Daito, you know, which is, you know, Hakaru, uh, you know, which is you know, Dentacam, which, which I was studying at the time, but you know, and I was looking at all thinking, my God, this is this is very very similar, you know, the wrist locks and phrase and, and things like that, and uh, and then I and then I only heard from somebody else say, well, yeah, yeah, because you know it was the Russians, of course, to influence the Chinese that uh, to, to do it, and then of course then of course got the Indian thing with the Indians influenced it, and it came through the the Indian monks that influenced the Chinese monks, which then inf- which then influenced Kung Fu, but then of course we've got that wonderful one, which and I've seen it in some Brazilian Jiu Jitsu books where the idea that well actually it all came from Greece because, of course, Alexander, you know, invaded <laughs> conquered India, and uh, and he brought and, and of course it's it's uh, it's pancreation really. What they're actually training is pancreation, and pancreation was really the mother of all martial arts, and it all came from from that point. Uh, and uh, what this is, um, you know, here's a Scrabble word for you: hyperdiffusionism. <laughs> and I, I came across this care of a guy called Damien Thompson, um, wrote a book called Counter Knowledge, um, and he, he really looked into a lot of hyperdiffusionism. This idea that um, you know that China had really, you know, they'd been to America first, and um, and a lot of the idea, you know, the, you know they're, they're actually at the the heart of all civilization, all all main cultures and civilization really came from China. Uh, and again, but martial artists are very much into this sort of, um, you know, which is essentially geared by, you know, e- ethnocentricity. But also, I think, you know, you find a lot of. Um, a lot of historical documents when they were uh, in martial arts when they when they um, you know medieval historical documents the treatises you know scrolls like in japan they, they love to reference the chinese classics because they're seen in, in the same way as the sort of the romans love referencing the greek scholars you know yeah. so you know you know it, 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 they'll forge a lineage you know to it you know they're both because they they see it as a you know it's this ancient civilization um you know, they might have a lot of regard for it now at that particular time when they're when they're when they're doing their own greatness, but they need to reference the old gods, so to speak, if you know what I mean. They need to reference the older civilization to do that. And you see this throughout history, where people are, 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 are they 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 forge a link. There might be a link in some way, but they like to, to, to find a direct lineage where they can say, well, it, it came from there, and therefore it makes what we're doing far older. Or, or we are the natural successors of that of that old civilization that's now deteriorated. Mm. You, know, you know, you get this with the the Aeneid. You know, the um, you know you get it with um, Virgil's Aeneid. You know, the, 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 the you know the epic poem of um, uh, uh, written in the time of uh, the Emperor Augustus, where. Uh, that the Romans like to make out that they that they're the last survivors of, of Troy, you know. So Troy f- fell, but Rome, you know, rose up. You know, they're mm. they're not giving any great, uh, you know, credit to that part of the world. But the idea is that there was a great civilization, and now this is the the, the newer, um, you know, one but has this ancient lineage. And again, you, you see this, you know, throughout the martial arts world, they, 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 the idea that there has to be this one place, this common origin, and this was the place that it all came from. And it's, it works in both ways, uh, you know. In one sense. You You've got the people who are who um, who have a connection 
to that uh, um, uh, country or culture, you know, you know, are of that nationality, are of that um, ethnic group. Um, to them, it's like saying, well, we're the oldest, you know, we had the longest time to develop this. You got it all from us. Therefore, somehow yours is more impure than us. You know, I, I know you get yeah. that a lot with the Chinese martial arts with karate. You know, I, I did hear this fantastic myth about apparently um, the Chinese, um, this is, and this is, again, uh, moving into another area of the bullshit, so the conspiracy theory, which is all up throughout martial arts as well. Martial artists love conspiracy theories, just like everybody does, but, you know, they, they do culture it, and sometimes it's even contained within a lot of the teaching of their arts. But I heard from one Chinese martial artist that said that uh, the Chinese um, taught the Japanese, um, <clears throat> I think they meant the Okinawans, but they taught the Japanese bad kung fu so that they'd wreck their joints. <laughs> if they're playing the long game you see there <laughs> and, and it, uh, yeah, actually yeah, absolutely and this guy believed it completely he was a very respected chinese martial arts instructor um lovely guy um teaches you know trains a you know you know trained a lot of people trains over in china trains in taiwan um great to that but yeah he said he uh they his teacher told him that they that, that they taught that was the whole idea so so karate is actually a conspiracy to wreck the joints of, of to the japanese it, it, it goes back that's i've never heard that one before but i love it it, it, yeah. it goes back to that uh, um, that idea of just uh, um just no objective measure you know so it's, yeah so, so that now how, how do we measure whether something's good or not because you know we can forget about its combative application away from that how do we determine so we go well historical purity the purer it is yeah the the, the, the therefore the um the better it is and i also can see ed parker's quote on that i i repeat a lot at seminars where when people had asked, you know, what was pure karate? And Ed Parker replied that pure karate was when pure fist met pure face. You know, yeah. I think that's just, yeah. that, 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 that to me is the, that, that's the True. ultimate objective measure. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, it's a bit yeah. flippant and, you know. Yeah, but I, wait, I, it's, 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 the, it's the martial arts equivalent of when the rubber hits the, gra- it's the tarmac, isn't it? That, 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 that's absolutely, that, 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 that's absolutely what it is. And, and like, uh, again, I see because of like the, the, the Bodhimara myth and the Shaolin Temple myths, it's one of the things that I sometimes find find its way uh, in the, the, the karate is this idea that there's almost like a, a Zen influence. And, and again, that's widely debunked. You know, this Zen samurai link has been widely discredited and yeah. all, all, all this kind of stuff. So we, we get this this uh, strange bleed. And the one of the ones that, that I find very interesting on that is uh, Itosu, Anko Itosu. So if we call Funakoshi the father of modern karate, then Itosu was the grandfather. The very first line in his 1908 document is uh, karate did not come from Buddhism or Confucianism. So, yeah. so he, he seems to have been quite objective there and, and has tried to call that myth. But yet uh, others use that myth, sometimes quite subtly as well, where they'll do things like it has been said that and then go, I don't know if it's true or not, but it has been said that. Yeah. So they, they can claim the credit. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. People don't want to look into it too deeply. Um, but I, again, we, we've talked about this. I think sometimes the real history is way more interesting than the, the pseudo history, and, and yes. we, should, we should be happy to let that go. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I agree. And, um, you know, and I'm not, uh, I mean, I, the thing is, uh, you know, I, I'm naturally drawn towards mythology, as I said to you um, earlier on. Um, I, you know, I'm a romantic at heart. I love mythology. I love, I think, it's, you know, it's rich. It's, you know, I love great literature and things like that. And I think there's a lot, you know, we, we can get from that, provided we understand what it is. And, 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 and uh, you know, I have no well, problem uh, with... with, say, with sorry, yeah. Jim, sorry, but I was sorry, just going to say that. That's not... Cause, we use the word myth, and we've, we've in this conversation, I mean, like an untruth. 
Yes. But, 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 but I, I think like, like all myths serve a purpose, you know. So, yes. so, so these, if we understand why people felt it necessary to construct these stories, that's a relevant yeah. part of the story. Definitely. So, so Definitely. long, so long yeah. as we don't treat them as being uh, true, you know what I mean? That, that's yeah. a bit historically true. So uh, they may but, serve a valuable purpose. I mean, yeah. you know, if you've got a, if it serves a, 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 that can be a poetically true or something like that yeah. without being literally true. And I can yeah. understand for martial arts, you might want to say, well, we'll take the prevailing religion of the day and try and connect it to it to make it more acceptable and, and to make sure that it doesn't become a violent pursuit. So that, that yeah. the telling of the story is worthwhile. So long as we yes. don't understand that the, or as long as we do understand that the story itself isn't true, and then we can't use it as an historical lens to understand the development of the art. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, bringing to your point about you know the this thing about uh, you know religion and martial arts. I mean, um, you know, a lot of uh, you know the, um, the, there seems to be a, a drive in martial arts to connect, and, and it's a long time drive. Certainly in civ- more civilized peacetime, mm. uh, where, where when martial artists were doing the best they could to uh, rationalize what they're doing. I mean, you, and you see, uh, you see it happening in China, um, around where, uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of oppression on martial artists and a lot of oppression on, on martial arts teachers and their families. And because obviously they didn't want militias to be springing up because it was very, a very um, relevant threat in China, um, certainly throughout the sort of uh, the 19th century. Um, the late 18th to 19th to early 20th century, uh, the government, you know, the, uh, the the dynasty at the time was, um, you know, w- you know, worried at the, uh, about uh, militias forming up, and they had good reason to to worry about those militias forming up. So, martial artists, when they sort of started becoming a little bit more commercialised at the end of the, the end of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century in China, it had a, had a need, um, and certainly the scholars, you know, who happened to be martial artists, it was incidental that they were martial artists, but they then said, right, well, I'm going to justify my practice of martial arts and teaching of martial arts by giving it an, an ethical core, a moral core, a philosophical core. Yeah. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's good examples. I think, you know, really good book that you directed me to in the first place that I, I certainly have used for a lot of research and bullshit. So it was uh, Brian Kennedy's uh, um, and Elizabeth uh, yeah, Gao's excellent uh, book. Excellent book. Yeah, yeah, excellent book. Yeah, um, yeah um, martial arts, uh, sorry, Chinese martial arts uh, training manuals, uh, uh, a, a survey. Um, uh, it's, uh, and, and, and again, it's uh, Stan, Stanley Henning, I think, is the guy who references from there. One of the first guys to write a scholarly paper to say attacking the political correctness in Chinese martial arts in about, I think, 1981. I think this paper was written maybe a bit I don't think I've got the date exactly right but it's around then you can find it Stanley Henning and uh, Brian Kennedy references him a lot because again he was he was a guy who, who pretty much brought us back at the attention of Tang Yao a guy in the 1920s you know it's funny because we get this again this other sort of part of it where, where people seem to think that the 1990s was the time when martial traditional martial arts or martial arts were were getting exposed um, as being not effective or uh, but these arguments were being made a long time before that. You know, mm. the stuff that Tang Yeo was talking about is, you know, things that, again, the likes of, you know, Jeff was talking about in the 90s. And uh, um, so, yeah, um, you know, you've got a long history of, you know, of, of people checking these things. You know, you, you know, that the, 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 there is uh, this delusion does creep in that it's uh, charlatanism or um, in some respects and in other respects, um, well-meaning, you know, delusion. You know what I mean? Well, you know, well-meaning ideas that, beca- that become delusion, you know, creeps in. And martial artists, certainly in civilized times, in a lot of them are fighting this this upward stream of um, uh, of misinformation and disinformation. Yeah. So, so, you know, so we, so, you know, so we do we, we do have that. But 
But uh, as you say, you know, there was often, you know, we can look at things like saying why there was a philosophical element, you know, by understanding that, um, by understanding that it is a myth, that, you know, that there are certain stories being told, that the samurais were all these uh, devout Zen, you know, followers, um, that, uh, um, and again, I think the, the, sam- the, the story of the samurai is always interesting because we tend to have a sort of a, a meshed idea of what a samurai is and pretty much what we think of a samurai, what the popular view of a samurai is, is what you see in the sort of late Edo period and it's kind of mixed with what actually was the case during the Sengoku period, you know, it's, it's a total different sort of vision. And during that time, that sort of 250 years of when the samurai were preparing for war, that never happened. And, and, their, and, their, and their job deteriorated into just becoming civil servants. Yeah. And a lot of them lost land and things like that. And they got more and more engaged in poetry, more and more engaged in philosophy. They did a lot of um, work with their histories where they were... Um, uh, um, rationalizing a lot of what they did um, along Zen principles. So there's a lot of sort of, um, I, I think, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, comic book fans would call it sort of a re- retroactive continuity. You know what I mean? They'd go back and justify um, what was going on in the Sengotiku period as being Zen. And um, and the same sort of thing happens with all throughout the martial arts. You know, get, so, so, so in, you've got this happening in, in Japan, uh, you know, civil servants, philosophers, um, you know, justifying all these, you know, all this violence, this organized violence as being a philosophical way and, and allowing it to, to, uh, to continue. I mean, again, you know, in order to, in order to justify the practice and training of, of, uh, Kenjitsu, which becomes Kendo and, or, um, and, you know, Aujitsu becomes Audo and, uh, you know, the Jujitsu and so on like that, you know, in order to justify all these practices that they, they sort of, they, they, they need these philosophical backgrounds because people are saying, well, why are you learning this? And, uh, particularly when you've got itchy governments who are thinking, well, you know, the, a lot of guys, a lot of young men training together, you know, um, doing dangerous things, training in military mm. arts. You know, why are you guys doing this? It's the same reason that we sometimes might have the same rationale with the, the survivalist, you know, community. You know, saying why, why are these guys, you know, getting, you know, you know, stoked by paranoid ideas and trying to build bomb shelters and, you know, ways to survive and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's the same concerns that, that, that you would have. So in order to... In, and maybe even to rationalize it to themselves as well, you know, because uh, I know I have the same. OK, let's look at it another way. I have the same issue with when I'm teaching self-protection. I, I, I teach self-protection as a 10 hour course now. And then when I finish doing the 10 hour course, I say to my, you know, the people, my clients, um, um, right. OK, you've, you've learned enough now in terms of what is what is a negative first aid course. Wouldn't you like to, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, which is what, you know, you know, a first aid, you know, when learning doing a first aid course, you might do something up to a three day first aid course but beyond that you know what do you want to do do you want to become a paramedic yeah. you know it's in, 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 you know your, your job you've come here you've wanted for whatever reasons you want you've wanted to learn self-protection to feel more secure to to be you know more responsible to you know be able to protect your family but you know everything you need now what i've given you and, and trained in here and and the soft skills i've given you should should be enough now for you know for at least six months when you can come have a top up you know what i mean if you go away and train this and train these principles and things like that you know we've you know you've got you know anything more than that's going to overcomplicate the matter's going to you know back to peter considine and his different boxes for training you know you need you know have a, like a match box for your self-defense stuff and you, you know far larger boxes for sports and art yeah. if you know what i mean so my attitude to that is like saying right okay 
I don't want you to dwell in self-protection for too long. You know, I, I definitely want you to keep aware of news stories and to, I'd love you to go off and look at criminology and things like that. But I don't want you to be in a paranoid mindset, you know, because that's just as bad as being unaware. You know, wouldn't you like, but you enjoy, let, let's face facts, would you enjoy doing, well, I, I love doing the physical training. I like, I like, a, I like the combat element. You know, let's, let's admit that, you know, let's, you know, it doesn't mean you want to be a psychopath. It doesn't mean that you want to go out on the streets and hurt people. You know, you, you, you enjoy that just because that's the way to do it. Okay, well, let's, well, let's do some boxing then. We'll do a, do, do a mm. 10 hour boxing course let's do a 10 hour muay thai course let's do it and i and i I see you doing that a bit with when you do when you're teaching karate you'll teach the 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 pragmatic self-defense element of it but you also then say well let's have some fun you know what i mean absolutely to me pretty much like again that's another one where we agree i I always think that self-defense to me is is the entry-level requirement yes you know it's it's the base thing that any for me anyway i mean i appreciate other people have other views but for me yes any worthwhile martial art has to address that. Then, yes. what, then when it's done with that, you know, or, I mean, not that you ever fully done with it, but when you say, okay, we've got enough there now, then there's nothing wrong with studying the art for art's sake or the, the joy yeah. of physical movement or the, the combative one-on-one fight-to-a-win dueling skills. You know, yeah. I, I think all of that is, is, is valuable and worthwhile. I, I only see a problem with it when people confuse one for the other. Yeah. And I'm with you. If, if you spend all of your time just self-defense, 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 the, the vast majority of people will live in one of the safest times in history. You know, it, it, it's yeah. not a pressing need. And as a joke at seminars, no one should get to be 90 years old and then on the deathbed say, you know what? I never got stabbed once. That karate stuff was a complete waste of time. You know, they've, yeah, they've, yeah. Got, they've got to be getting something else out of it during during that time. Yeah, and I think I think that's to say you know so you've got that that two thing going on. So I mean, say from 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 my perspective, I mean the idea of that is like you know obviously I'll take somebody on a, you know we do a, you know a ten hour course on on the martial arts, you know, and we'll just focus on cross training in a martial art. And we'll work specifically within those boundaries of that martial art mm-hmm. because it's great for refining those specific skills. I mean, arguably. Um, well, I'd say I I'd definitely argue the point that uh, modern Western boxing um, refined and developed far better punching skills than um, bare knuckle pugilism, because yeah. because because once the protect, you know, loads of things. I mean, you've got everything from the development of sports science, um, the world coming closer together. So more opponents to face, more people to train, uh, more professional sponsorships and more hours to train. All those elements are there, but even the the safety elements of Western boxing, taking the grappling out of it, um, putting the mufflers on, you know, becoming the gloves, making that mandatory, all those sort of requirements, bandaging the hands, etc. All those sort of things that, you know, that that weren't present in in, in your bare knuckle prize fight. and allow people then to experiment further, to be able to go, you know, to develop, you know, to a higher level. So, um, you know, hence the reason why, and, and I'm sure that, you know, this, this is a you know, massive argument um, and certainly one for another day. But while you'll find that, you know, your average professional boxer or even your average top level amateur boxer um, won't won't have a lot of problems dealing in a one-to-one confrontation with with, with your average very good bare knuckle fighter, you know, a bare knuckle boxer, because he, he has he trains more. Um, uh, he's training within an area with with a lot of high higher level fighters constantly all the time, and this is what we see all the time. You know what I mean? When you end up getting a bare knuckle fighter gets in the ring with a with a boxer, and it's under boxing rules, obviously the you know the the other fighter wins. You know, the the, the modern boxer wins, because, but generally because he's professionally trained. I mean, 
and I appreciate that's another scope of, of areas oh, wow. for discussion, but, but it, it goes, but it's it, just to bring it back to what we're just discussing here about like the common origin myths and the problems there. The reason why we, we tend to have these kind of things is because people want to develop, um, outside of that, especially they do, and they don't see a need for it, an immediate need for, for, for training, um, vi- you know, against violence. And that ends up coming into your head, doesn't it? You know, when you're training in a gym, you know, eventually you start going, well, you, you adapt to what your environment is. And you saw that with the samurai. You see that with the Chinese militia. You see that with, um, uh, um, you know, boxers, you know, bare knuckle, in, in, uh, um, you, you, you know, you see this kind of thing happen all the time, you know. So, um, but so within that, though, the, the danger, the, I mean, it's, it's a good thing in some respects, but the danger, as you say, is that people get too much into that part of it. Um, what's something I call the Calypso effect? Um, I put it in Mordred's Victory, the, 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 the first martial arts book I wrote, um, an article about that where, you know, people end up almost like on an island in marsh in martial arts, and they don't want to leave it, and uh, yeah. and they, and they and they forget about the self defense application. Well, maybe there's a sort of calypso effect that happens with with the, with the common origin myth. You know, maybe it's uh, um, you know, the further you know, they start reinventing history because you know, as what the, what they start doing, they start becoming conscious about what they're doing actually isn't the same as what their ancestors were doing with a, with a martial art discipline, but they need to make to, to to justify what they're doing and to justify what they're doing is in line with what they did before therefore they changed the history yeah but which, which, i mean i always take this just as fact that like science you know i mean if you look yeah. at, like your modern quantum physicists start looking back at newton yeah. going you idiot you know what i mean like, yeah, yeah exactly you know, they all yeah. Go, like, okay thanks for everything you worked out we can now use yeah. that as a means to move forward you see yes where, where in the martial arts it tends to be this idea that almost like uh, there was a, a point of perfection that was reached and anything from there is now like an aberration that's moving in the wrong direction. And you're saying it's not, there's these, these changes as well as we go forward, I think produce positive results as well. So the, the invention of boxing gloves, for example, that, that causes certain problems, but it allows them to develop to a higher level uh, skills that they wouldn't be able to if they hadn't adopted them safety models. So it's one of the things I often, it bugs me, you know, you often people go, oh yeah, okay, that MMA fight, it may be very good, but in a real fight, that bite it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and then you'll smash all your teeth out and beat you anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's because I, I always like that one when they say, um, when you do an arm bar on somebody, and they say, I mean, not to say that an arm bar on the ground really is, you know, the sort of thing that you, you, you it's, it's your, your first go-to move, but it's, you know, certainly a very practical skill. Um, uh, you know, it, it's proven its place in people, and and, and it, you hear this from self-defense instructors who've watched Enter the Dragon, and this is where the point comes from. They go, you could just bite him in the car, and, they go, <laughs> and, they're, and they've got this image of the guy putting the arm bar on. So you've got a hyper-extended arm bar. You've got all your body lined up against that part of the body you've isolated the arm and you're the point of breaking the elbow very easily at that, at that point and someone bites you in 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 the in the calf i mean i, I mean as you pointed out in one of your instructional videos i really like i said well you know quite simply you know we removed the teeth with the back of the heel because <laughs> uh, and funnily enough i you know i've, I've taught that as a as actually as part of a um a technique actually is you know going into the arm bar position but not putting the arm bar on but going straight to that sort of axe kick position because the thing was well, actually not a bat and if you're going to end up on the ground and you end up falling into this kind of position then you know that that's your you know that's a good striking point actually funnily enough you can yeah. you know because their head's lined up perfectly with your foot you know it's really really close what? but the thing is is that in re- reality someone bites you in the calf when you're hyper you know what you do you think the average person's just going to let go of the arm and just go you know it's not likely you know it's certainly in the, the you know what's going to happen is the arm's going to break what? and the thing is is that the, the same self-defense people who are saying that 
will be the first people to criticise movie martial arts, when in fact they've probably got that reference from John Saxon biting Bolo Young in the back of the car. Because <laughs> uh, that's the, really the only time I've ever seen that shown as an application, yeah. if you know what I mean. When I was working with the, the judo guys, we were working on ways to break the grip to get into Jujigatami. Yeah. And I was um, doing some of training with one of my training partners, and I hadn't set the context. So obviously, sometimes when we grapple, it's for to win, and other times it's to escape. And we had to yeah. And that's exactly yeah. what I did. I thought, well, I'll get the armbar. I thought, oh, I'll play here. I'll try and see if I can break it. You know, he did the right thing. He tied his arms together. So I thought, yeah. I'll try trying to break it. Well, next thing I know, I take the grippy lump out the back of my car. Because <laughs> so, so, we're playing, you know. So I'm like, yeah. what's he doing? So I'm, I'm moving my leg off and looking at him. He goes, am I allowed to do that? He's like, you did. Yeah. So, so, so and I think, they, just take me back to your island thing. I think that's that's the idea, though. Because um, uh, we get it the other way. I've also heard people say that, or oh, if someone does that, you'll make him angry. Well, if you're talking about self-defense, that guy's already pretty angry. <laughs> I love that you know, one. I love that one. Yeah, you know, don't make bite him angry. Him. Yeah, don't bite him because you'll make him angry. Well, if he's already trying to, like, if it's self, if he's already trying to smash your face at the pavement, he's already <laughs> angry. But what they're thinking of, and I can, what they're thinking of, well, what would happen in the gym if I was yes. about to get this armbar and somebody bit me? Well, it would make me angry. It might escalate into a real fight. And yeah. So the, my term I use for that is I call it mono-context thinking, where where they understand one type of violence, one specific thing, and assume it applies to all others. Mm. And, and, of course, it doesn't. You know, different objectives change, so therefore your choice of techniques, tactics, and strategies change. So, you know, you get these, again, whole set of myths evolving around that, like, you know, don't bite him, you'll make him angry. In a real fight, you just put your thumb in his eye and you'll win. Um, the yeah. idea that, uh, well, nothing works against multiple opponents, so let's not even bother addressing it. You know, you all see all these yeah. modern myths that... that, that, that permeate but again i think you're right it's the idea to remain comfortable with on the island rather than say you know we, we may have to leave for this particular yeah. skill you know absolutely absolutely and uh anyway, good. funnily enough you know our discussion of course has gravitated back to training again and away from but from history but but, but to you know to try and clumsily link it again back to that whole uh, or um you know uh, common origin myth um it, it's it, and it's very very base what we're discussing here again is false premises you know it, it, the idea that you say that the, the, we have this um uh um the idea that you know that, that someone is applying the mentality of training in the gym to to training in you know re, to fighting in real life um, uh, is it, it, that same problem, isn't it? You immediately start with that false premise, and that's exactly the same well, thing with us. I was trying to say about the whole Shaolin monk, you know, a, you know, common origin myth is, is the idea that a lot of people in martial arts would work from the idea that that's an accepted fact that yeah. it all started in the Shaolin Temple and therefore everything else follows in from that you know, you know when you get the idea well pancreation was the start of well, in order to ex- accept that pancreation is the root of it or you have to accept that the Shaolin Temple is the root of it or at least China is the root of all martial arts and to, in order to accept Rem- yeah, yeah. remarkable that th- th- this idea that there was ever a tribe of people that yeah. encountered somebody and they went, you know what, if you twist your arm this way, it really, really hurts. And they go, yeah. oh, for thousands of years, we never thought of that. We, well, we, I, we never yeah. thought that that could be an option. Oh, exactly. You have it all the time. And I think and the, the first time I think we ever addressed this, and it came up, um, it's coming up certainly in the, f- the first, uh, the, the, the pre-volume of bullshit, so the collection of uh, articles, um, collection of essays that I wrote. 
Um, I referenced it about documentaries, and you, you brought it up. Um, uh, I think you brought. I can't remember brought it on the podcast or an article, but it was the the. the uh, it's an episode of the the human, yeah, the shoulder throw from the human weapon, yeah. uh, where where they were focusing on pain creation in the human weapon, and they said the shoulder throw. You used you used to seeing this in judo. Well, actually, it shows you that it comes from the ancient Greeks, and I thought that was fascinating because you know not only were you looking at a re. Uh, um, a recreated martial art, a resurrected martial art. I mean, the pancreation, you know, that they were teaching, let's, I mean, let's face facts, there isn't any evidence I have seen yet that pancreation survived, you know, ancient Greece. That, you know, that all forms of pancreation that we see now are a resurrected form of pancreation. It's stuff, which I've got no problem at all. In fact, guys who, you know, on its basis, I love it because I think it's living history. I'm seeing, I see this a lot with people, like especially the Western arts. You know, there's a lot of resurrecting. You know, using yeah. old treatises and doing stuff. Like that. Great stuff. Um, there's an element of bullshit too that creeps into that, which I, we can talk about if you want. But uh, but but certainly from a positive side of it, always oh, this wonderful living history. Uh, the danger there is, of course, the fact that you look in the human weapon where they're showing pancreation going doing the. What's probably happened there is that well, number one, as you point out. Um, you know, this is hyperdiffusionism, the idea that no one came up with a with, with, with a shoulder throw. You know, the fact that, the fact that, you know, all these grappling, you know, grappling is a fundamental fighting art in all cultures. You know, every culture has got a form of grappling. You know, it's a, a form of wrestling. And all those forms of wrestling you can you can roughly see lots of similar moves and holds in in, in just because there's only really got you know everyone's got you know two arms and two legs so um there's that part of it but it probably is that the the pancreationists have, prob- have actually probably got it got it from judo <laughs> the ones are actually learning that they've actually learned that skill from that. i'm not saying that they it's, it's not in pancreation it's not in the text and they're definitely not not saying that but they've probably learned the mechanics of that through having uh, you know their involvement with modern martials because a lot of people who get involved in historical martial Martial arts. In fact, I've already got a background in current martial arts. I mean, you know, they, they 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 train them first. Well, well, so, I, yeah. well I put, I've definitely done that. So so yeah. when, when I start looking at you know my karate, one of the things I discover is that back in the past there was a lot of throwing practice. And yeah. there's, there's references to the throws in certain places in Catherine. There's throwing in the old text. So I bring that throwing back into my practice. Now after a certain while, I think no, I want to get good at this. So I, I go. And, and seek out judo instruction. So, what yes. the, and now, now, now some of the judo applies well, and some of it doesn't quite fit because of the different objectives. But definitely, judo improved my yeah. karate throwing. But that doesn't yes. mean that the throws that I practice originated in judo. No, they're in karate as well. But obviously, there's been a, a joining, if you like, of the judo and the karate line at me. Yeah, because when yeah. I was like when when I first saw my, my my judo instructor, you know, have you done some throwing? I said, you know, yeah, I've done some. So can you can you show me this throw and that throw and the other throw? And I did them for them, and, and he said, uh, yeah, it's all right. He says looks a bit like 1950s judo. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> but actually it's 1930s karate. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but, but I get I get the, get the point. So he kind yeah. of uh, developed on. So I don't think you or I we're not saying that you know you can't look to the modern systems to especially ones that specialize in a given area. To enhance yeah. what you're doing, but that, that yeah. doesn't mean that those skills weren't prevalent back in the past. Nor does it mean that they all originate from from one source. So there's a, there's no. a, a tapestry of things there. I think people yeah, this, do well to consider. Yeah, I mean, there's two there's two issues with the common origin. One is you've got you've got you've got the common origin with the idea that everybody is training in the same in the same uh, system. It all comes from the same place, um, which kind of runs with our sort of idea that you know 
we can trace back civilization back to a certain point. I mean, it, I mean, it, it does, sometimes it works with a sort of rationality, but the idea is that, that, that uh, everything then can be stemmed back to that. Well, in that case, you've got to go right back to Paleolithic, you know, pre-Paleolithic times, if you know what I mean, which is, it seems ridiculous. And probably before we became human beings, we, we, were, we were using tools. Um, so, so, you know, how it, before we were human, <laughs> you know what I mean? We, you know, you know, that's your route. And that, and, but, you know, by that point, you know, humans had spread out, you know, to all different parts, you know, different parts of the world. You know what I mean? I mean, we were looking at, uh, the origins of things like that. So that's a, it's a ridiculous sort of, um, way to look at it and as you point out um but then there's the other thing just as you just um, as you're talking about this idea that um you know that different systems can influence each other or they don't necessarily come from the same place but then you have you do then have this sort of isolationist way of thinking of saying okay well we're not saying that all martial arts came from where we came from but we invented this martial art <laughs> and nothing else uh, you know and we invented it and it did and there are some arts that really distance themselves from that connection now um i'm tending to go with as far as evidence is concerned with with carno's point about judo not having its origins in china because he talks about several when you read you know carno uh, jiguro's um uh, piece about he actually wrote writes of it i mean there you go there's a critical thinker again in, in the um, it was a paper he wrote in the late 19th century about uh judo's origins um and uh d dispelling the chinese myth you know which um uh, it's it's funny enough you know in in many respects um and, and i pretty appreciate that you know japan was moving into very imperialistic sort of times so there was you know there was there might have been a need to nationalize things so much but what you tend to find with a lot of martial arts in in japan was that was that they, they didn't have any problems with with showing chinese origins because it, it justified their lineage and certainly prior to that the medieval times they they, they you know they that, uh, a lot of martial arts would um, make links, you know, you know, right, to, you know, say right to the medieval texts, they were making links to China because it made it seem older because, you know, they knew that the Chinese civilization was older. But Kano was saying, no, that the, the, there isn't a direct link to the Chinese martial arts. And he talked and he talks about several stories that were put about with how jujitsu came into japan and each one of them sounds quite ridiculous to be honest you know they're all the classic traveler story you know yeah. one this one guy turns up and you know just despite the fact that you know sumo wrestling had been around about a thousand years prior to, to this, these guys turning up and you know of course these guys are obviously religiously influenced or you know or even godlike you know so some of these forefathers of uh of jujitsu of, of yeah marshall prometheus yes exactly yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. He, i love that marshall prometheus okay there's a there's a title for an article <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it's a, or even a book um but uh yeah you know you've got, you've got some sumo wrestling looking back to 230 you know bce aren't you you know things like that so you know in graphic playing stars and say they're they're, ever, they're they're everywhere um but then you have this thing that's sort of isolation i mean and i know it happened in korea certainly happened with you know with, with the likes of you know a lot of the a lot of the modern you know modern but tra modern yet traditional korean systems you know taekwondo tang sudo Kong, uh, um, uh, hapkido uh, um you, you know that for a while they made a point about it it all coming from the legendary frang you know this 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 uh equivalent to the japanese samurai which actually the evidence doesn't show that they're anything more than um, that there were educated young male youth. Some people have even said, you know, male concubines or something, the, the Farang were, but they were turned into at one particular time and strong Jap uh, China, uh, Korean nationalism in the 50s. You know, they would, they would, st they would start to be turned into these uh, uh, godlike figures that were like the equivalent to the samurai, but before the samurai. And I've even seen someone try to make out the Koreans influence the samurai, you know, and you've got, you know, all this kind of stuff all, all, all you know, all turning up. And, um, uh, and, and so, 
you know, this whole history was invented that, uh, you know, that, you know, Korea's actually got a very long martial tradition and, it, and this is all comes out of it. When in fact, of course, as we know, Taekwondo's, you know, origins are in Shotokan karate. I mean, it's an undeniable. I mean, it's, you know, all the evidence shows that. Um, Tang Sudo, likewise, you know, Hapkido, you know, clearly comes, you know, originally from, you know, Aikido or at least Daitaru Jiu-Jitsu, you know. Uh, you know, you know, we, we know, we can, we, we can see, you know, it's, it's, it's very obvious. It's very, very evident. Um, someone also describes something called the, uh, the Hopkido triangle where, where the, the, some of these Hopkido instructors that left Korea would suddenly turn up in America with a new martial art. That there was an ancient Korean martial art because they obviously they were trying to make their own system like that. You know, things like, you know, Farangdo and stuff like that. You know, which um is changed. You know, where we suddenly suddenly get this myth of the salsa, the, the Korean ninja, which never existed, um and um and then and, and all and that's then the connection with the. Uh, um, a lot of magical thinking that even went into the American army um, with the, the, the men who stare at goats and stuff like that. I know I'm going off on a lot of different subjects, but that gives you an idea that, say, say how, how we, yes, we have this common origin myth, but we also have this sort of isolated origin myth, this immaculate conception yeah, myth. Yeah. That's fascinating, Jim. I think there's lots in there for um, uh, people to ponder over. And if we, uh, again, obviously, I doubt this will be our last recording conversation, so we, if any particular <laughs> element people would like you to to go down that particular rabbit hole a bit further, then if they just let us know, we can certainly, certainly make that happen. So I know one thing that you, you have been working on a lot recently is your, uh, you've got a children's self-protection book that's coming out. And I know you've, you've taught on this subject and, and thought about it for, for quite a while. So if we maybe have a little quick break again, and then we'll come back and ch- ch- chat yep. about uh, children's, children's self-protection. So, so as I just mentioned, uh, um, uh, Jamie's been looking at uh, children's self-protection quite objectively uh, for quite a while now. Uh, there's a few articles from way back when on that topic on my website written by Jamie. And uh, the book, I believe, is is now out as well. So if you maybe want to talk about the book, Jamie, and some of the things related to self-protection for children that you, you feel are important for uh, listeners to hear. Yeah, uh, thank you, Ian. Um, it's uh, it's currently an ebook, um, but uh, and hopefully it'll get into printed form later on. That, but we'll, we'll see how, how successful it is as an ebook first. Um, I got into children's self protection probably at, actually at the very beginning of when I first started Club Chimera Martial Arts. When I first started teaching um, martial arts and self protection my way, um, you know, and not under any particular style banner, but uh, completely under my way. And, and um, I it was it was a starting point for me because I, and I. I I was, you know, I understood that children made up, you know, at least 70 percent at the time of um, of martial arts attendees. Um, but uh, the majority of them weren't being taught any sort of practical skills for martial arts. It was often a very abstract way of, of doing it. So I thought, well, why isn't there any sort of why isn't there any reality revolution for children's self-protection? Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, that that was my, kind of my, you know, my problem. And, and uh, of course, there was a lot of inherent issues with that. As soon as I, you know, uh, and, uh, and and it wasn't the easiest of subjects to teach. Um, but for me, I didn't feel like I was addressing, um, you know, the most vulnerable members of our society um, in a productive way. And for me, self-protection really should, you know, meet that test. You know, you should be able to provide something that can uh, can better um, ensure the safety of, of of those more likely to be attacked should we say or more likely to be involved i mean after all okay um you know <clears throat> 
We are, as you pointed out, we're definitely living in the, you know, one of the safest times in, in history. Um, in, uh, you know, um, e- even if you ignore all the, the news bulletins and so on, um, <laughs> the media that, that feeds us all the time. But we are, um, and children are, you know, less likely to be attacked now than they, w- they would have been in the past. That's certainly for sure, and certainly in less danger than they would they would be. Um, but still, it, um, you know, a, ch- a child when it goes to, to school every day, you know, is, is always going to be, you know, susceptible to the targets of bullies in some shape yeah. or form, or um, you know. And, uh, you know, rough and tumble between kids and some of that is, is, is a natural part of growing up. And it, it's inevitable, you know, that, that, that it's going to happen. So with that in mind, you know, children are put in touch with a certain form of violence more than your average um, adult. And I, I appreciate I'm not I'm not making a, 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 you know, a direct comparison between an assault and uh, and even a, you know, even a playground brawl. But still, you know, w- when we go to, you know, the, the average adult goes to work every day, the chances are they're not going to be involved in, in, some, in a physical interaction with someone else. Whereas children, well, I'd say it's, you know, it's, it's 50-50 for, for a lot of kids, you know, that they're going to, in some way, you know, on the day, they're going to have a bit of a wrestle with one of their mates or it's going to, and it's going to get a bit aggressive and, um and but also they're more likely to be targeted not only by other children but they're also targeted by adults so they had a bigger sphere so that was the problem you know um i think you've talked about this before about addressing the problem mm. and uh, and that was something that was it was staring at me you know when i was looking at self-protection i was thinking well you know you know why am i not teaching children these skills so i began with children really um and a lot of what i taught with children helped influence again a lot of the way that i, I taught uh, adults with self-protection um certainly things like under understanding ranges and, and things like that because again you know the average child you teach a child about spatial awareness and uh, the concept of the fence they have to adapt it to uh, different um, sizes a lot more so than your average adult will yeah I, I think i remember you talking about that with me as well that um that, you know the, the the kick them in the groin advice that is often given to uh, children by parents and adults and, and martial art instructors and when you tested this you found that it was pretty difficult for children to actually achieve that yes uh, that, that was actually yeah i mean i mean again i mean my book um uh, uh, when parents aren't around a young person's guide to self-protection is mainly focused on soft skills i mean i do, I do make a big point of that with their um uh, or even though the hard skills are are involved and in including a, f- a few um exercises um uh, but uh, when we did do the, the, the hard drill, uh, um, a lot of the, uh, the the training and put them under, you know, a, a test, we, we we found things like, you know, range was a real issue. I mean, we had we, we had an adult um, clad out, you know, saying, okay, right, well, this adult's going to grab hold of you. Um, do what you can to not let them grab hold of you. Or when they get hold of you, you know, they're padded up, hit them as hard as you like. And they couldn't even reach the groin. You know, when it, when it came to that distance, because again, it was this, you know, the, the things that were working was, uh, attacking the hands that were coming towards them and attacking the feet. Um, you, you know, they were, if you'd like, it was almost a, a, a Filipino martial arts perspective in, in, in that, in, in that respect. And, uh, and you look at, um, again, going back to the sort of the circus background, the, the animal background, if you like, um, I know that when people who've been attacked by, uh, you know, primates been attacked by, um, chimpanzees and things like that, the injuries are normally to the hands and to the feet. They're, they're, they're the things that they, they'll attack because they're the first things that come into their area. So, you know, your average adult, you might be teaching them to line somebody up. You're lining up a headshot or something. Well, then the average child is not going to, you know, unless it's another child around their size, which, you know, think about the likelihood of that, um, 
uh, you know, it's far less for a child than it is for than, than it is for an adult to have, find somebody around. You know, the adversary is going to be um, roughly around their size, and um, there's going to be a, a dramatic size difference. So yeah, when when training that, so there's a lot of stuff that I found. You know, when we started doing actual pressure tests with children. We found some, you know, some a lot of startling facts and things that were just being taught. Um, by martial artists, um, just because it was a one-size-fits-all attitude. Yeah. If you, if you get what I mean. Also, to work for kids too. Yeah, yeah. 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 When I taught in Denmark, um, we did when we did the uh, anti-abduction day, the second day on the anti-abduction. There was a lot of shock as well from uh, I know from I can see from parents and th- uh, when when they were seeing how fast a child could be abducted and carried away and things like that, and, and how quickly these things can can happen. So again, you know, it's, a lot of the time, you know, we, we you know with children, you know, we, you learn about teaching them urgency because because you know, children isn't much you know with your own kids Ian sense of urgency it doesn't compute does it half the time you know what I mean everything is like you know so again getting that across to kids as well you know you know the idea that you know you have to act and act far you know act quickly and efficiently um you know that's you know that's you know that's important too you know and um you know and that really can you know comes across you know with kids because again they say you know range and things like that they've got the school they've got so many things against them stacked against them that adults take for granted you know and um you know that's in, 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 and, and that you know, again it really tested my knowledge and i was able to bring that over into the adult training as well so it helped me a lot by teaching that mm. so you were saying uh, i mean obviously as you would do with self-defense generally the, the soft yeah. skills are the the more important skills yeah no i mean it, like I, I often think that you know i, I was in the process of writing a, a, a wider karate for self-defense book and, and the, the chapter on uh, aware which awareness I, I entitled don't skip this chapter because <laughs> I know most martial artists go, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I just want to get, show me how to hurt people and throw people and lock people. Yeah. It's a bit the martial arts one. So it's that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, then every problem, you know, looks like a nail. And that's why I think yeah. sometimes martial arts instructors make the worst self-defense instructors because they just go, okay, I'll teach martial arts to self-defense, whereas they're it's, not the same thing. It's funny you should say that. Just, again, it's terrible for these tangents. But the, yeah, the rule of the nail is 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 definitely um, it's an highlight of an essay that I wrote, and uh, it's actually in the in the not in the children's book, in the self uh, the uh, bullshit suit book um, called the boxing kangaroo and the rule of the nail. And what and what that came from was, and again, it does again. This is martial arts mentality when they the idea of like applying anything to, to children. You know, that, you know, the, you know the idea that you know what works for an adult is going to work for a ch- for a child. You just scales it down, which of course just isn't the case. You know, you don't. You don't adapt it but they also um again funnily enough and i, and I appreciate this is this is dovetailing over into the, our previous discussions there but uh, but but uh, a classic example of that was i saw this video um posted up um by a martial arts group um with um a performance of a boxing kangaroo uh where a kangaroo and uh, a performer working together and in, in, in what what they perceived as being a combat sport and everybody who responded to this Thought it was thought they were watching a combat sport. They were they, they thought somebody was attacking a kangaroo. They actually thought somebody was actually attacking a kangaroo, and people were making and worse still, people were making comments on the rubbish technique of the, of, of the boxer involved. <laughs> uh, um, and, and I'm not joking. I kept going through this and was waiting to see somebody's going to you know someone's going to call this out, and then, or, or they're joking surely. But there weren't weren't hundreds and hundreds of comments talking about what they perceived as being a fight between a cat between an animal and uh, um, a, 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 and a boxer, and they thought that's what it was. And I had to explain to them saying that this is a performance. I said you know the, the, the person there is a clown. It's an old traditional performance, and they're training the kangaroo to um you know to, to use its natural boxing movements against the performer against the stuntman that's what yeah. you're watching 
you're watching somebody like that you're not actually watching but there you go that's an example that was to me and, and, and that sent me off on a whole lot of discussion on the rule of the nail and again the rule of the nail is as, as you just pointed out is never better ex- expressed in the teaching of children martial arts and self-protection because oh, yeah. yeah yeah um and it shouldn't be because if you think about it um you know, a lot of the early, you know, martial arts training in uh, in social circles. I mean, again, it's more of I suppose more of a modern thing. You know, started with children. You know, a lot of martial arts. You know, they have a long tradition of teaching children. You know, martial arts from a young age. You know, you have this. We have a long. We have a like you know, quite a rich um, history of teaching children from a, from a young age. But. Yeah. Um, uh, but then again, I suppose we would understand what the conditions were that they, that, they, that they were training them in, and what the purpose was of what they're training them in. Yeah, I mean, again, some places it was almost expected for noblemen to have some martial training and abilities, you know. So, yes. but so, so like as I say, for adults, obviously, you'd say self. The, my big bugbear at the minute is the use of the term street fighting as linguistic yes. camouflage to get a fighting yeah. method passed off as self-defense. Yes. So we can say, well, we know how to fight a one-on-one fight, so we'll, we'll call that self-defense. If we use the term street fight, maybe no one will notice the bait and switch that we've used. Yes, but of course, as you pointed out, there's a much wider set of skills. Now, you and I have joked about this before that um, when you're talking about self-defense, you never see a martial artist in the magazine saying, "This is my window locks on my uh, my home," or "Let, let me show yeah. you my new yeah. alarm system," or you know yeah. what I mean? Because yeah. no, no one's interested in that. It's no, no, show me how not to you know get punched, or show me how to get out of an armbar. Yeah. So you were saying that yeah. obviously in the children's book, quite rightly, you, you concentrated heavily on the the, the, the softer skills. Uh, maybe you just want to, I mean, I'm sure there'll be people listening to this that are not sure what we're talking about. So maybe just de- define what soft skills are and the kind of things well, you'd use in, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in essence, um, the non-physical skills. So yeah. that's that, so that sort of really starts with attitude because that should, that should underline everything that happens in self-protection. And then into, and I, I use the terminology of, and again, I think it's, Peter Constant or Motig, I can't remember who's the one who first came up with it first, but they both use it as a terminology. Self-protection being the all-encompassing uh, banner for um, uh, protection skills, which can be divided into personal security, which are the soft skills, the non-physical skills, and self-defense, which is what we use to term all the, phys- the physical part of it. And uh, the soft skills are important because, again, it's, it's the beginning and the end of, of a conflict is are, are defined by soft skills. You know, it's everything, the pre-fight and the post-fight are very much uh, soft skills. So that that's everything from uh, the legal side of things. Um, I'd say attitudes and, and psychology and, and awareness, and which you just pointed out there, which is, uh, you know, again, it's given a lot, lot of lip service. Even today, um, people don't even think about, you know, questioning things like even the Cooper Color Code, which I use the Cooper Color Code in the uh, uh, Children's Self-Protection book. It, it is in there, um, although I, I've come to question it a little bit these days, but, you know, only in terms of... Um, I, I, I don't think it's that realistic to get people to be in a state uh, um, code yellow at all times. This, this, um, I, I think I'm probably in a sense of code white at the moment as I'm sat in my office now. In, in, at the moment, um, it, you know, it, I know it's a comfortable awareness that, that was the point with with Cooper. But again, he was remember he was addressing armed people mm. at that time. It was specifically for people with the pistol thing. I don't think it's bad, and I teach it, and it's in the sentence, and I've always taught the kids the Cooper Colour Code. But I think there needs to be a bit of um, uh, there's a fur- there needs to be a further discussion on it and a further discussion on awareness in yeah. general. Uh, I, I, I was just going to yeah. say, Jim, because I think that that's part of the trouble is that people hear yeah. the word 
So much yeah. like see, okay, awareness is important. So then they'll just turn up the dojo and go, it's very important to be aware. Now let's get back to getting yeah. on the headlocks. Job done. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even so, again, it's the idea becoming, I know, I know this is going back over into what, what we discussed before, but it then goes back into the idea becomes the institution because yeah. you end up going, they, they go, right, okay, well, what have I got? Teach awareness. I can't teach, how do, I, how do you teach awareness? Um, Cooper Color Code, right? So just tell everyone what the Cooper Color Code. Everyone recites it verbatim. You know, uh, yeah. uh, unaware, aware, uh, um, comfortably aware, um, uh, 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 um, yeah, possible your, threat, yeah, threat. Your assessment and then yeah, dealing with the thing. I mean, uh, we, we do the same. Our white belts yeah. have to um, yeah. Yeah, explain Cooper's color, color codes in reference to what we call the in threat. situations. Well, yeah, in reference to what we call the threat pyramid as well. So we've got the, yeah. we've got the threat pyramid and Cooper's color code, which we bind together. But the whole point of that, as you say, it's 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 to spark further discussion because I think with the awareness thing, it, it, the key yeah. part is well, what to be aware of. You know, yeah, it's, it's not exactly. just to be aware; it, it's what what am I supposedly aware of, and what actions am I supposed to be taking if I become aware of these things. So, I mean, again, for the the children's self defense uh, side of things in, in your book, uh, how have you given yeah. awareness in that? What what. Uh, Situational awareness, very much like a situational awareness. I mean, the idea that um, you have different levels of awareness depending on the situation, depending on how familiar you are with the situation, the time of day, um, uh, the the, the, uh, perception of hazards. Um, It it also goes on to the extent that, um, again, I I try to negotiate a lot of the um, myths that, that I put about self-protection again, and I appreciate there's a skepticism again or critical thinking again, but um, but, that, but it's very relevant. I mean, I mean, children are some of the not only children are some of the best critical thinkers going on because they're, they're great with their curiosity and questions, but also when you're dealing with something as serious as you know child self-protection, you know the actual issue of thinking you know um, as the title illustrates when parents aren't around you know this is you know a child that's unattended mm. it's a moment where a child is reliant on themselves taking that responsibility you know how how are they aware who are the people they should be looking out for what should they be looking out for what signs should they be looking out for in other people you know other people's behavior you know be- awareness of behavior of other people um and one of the myths again you know stranger danger yeah, yeah. And a stranger danger against a gimmick. It's, 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 it's a classic. It's a very easy gimmick. Stranger danger is what people say. Um, but what is a stranger? And, uh, and the truth of the matter is, is that when you have a child left unattended, a child needs reference points for safety. They need to know who can they go to to ask for help. Um, you know, they don't need to be thinking, right, I'm now surrounded by strangers. I, I'm, you know, that, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm done for. Do you know what I mean? Until I can find somebody I recognize, I'm done for. This is ridiculous. It's not a natural thing. And then you also have to approach the thing, and this is something I tell children, and it's sometimes a bit of an uncomfortable fact for the parents, but I have to convey it to them to say, well, you know, either we're going to learn proper self-protection, real, honest self-protection, or you just want me just to dress them up in a, in a little suit and they can make them do movements. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we we're going to, if we're going to deal with proper self-protection and not dealing with myths, okay, the truth of the matter is, is that the, the likelihood of a child being attacked by a stranger is far, far less than them being attacked by somebody they know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. So you've got to kind of say that very, very, you know, very shocking story to tell, a, you know, a child that, you know, children, like I've, I've taught children you know, as young as, uh, I've taught them as young as five, but I mean, to be honest, I, I don't really teach children really under, under seven these days. But uh, um, but uh, to be able to bring across the fact that the person that, uh you are that you're going to have problems with the person that is likely to be, be you know is going to bully you or attack you or you know physically or assault you in some way is going to be someone that you know so you know let's get away from the stranger point of it and the and the other fact of the matter is is that as i've just said you're going to need to probably go to a stranger for help 
you yeah. know, in a situation. Well, so that might yeah. take us back to as well. Just you know, this idea of if all you have is a you know hammer, then yeah. every problem looks like a nail. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the same for women as well, of course. They're far more, far more likely to be attacked by people in know than, than not. For, for men, it's a little bit different, particularly younger yeah. men, that they are more likely to get punched, kicked, or hit by a stranger, typically yeah. in somewhere that turns alcohol. So I, yeah. I, I think there's that element of, because of a lot of self-defense instructors are male, then they yeah. tend to take everything from a male point of view. You know, So that, that, I think yes. that, that's probably what's occurred in and it's reinf- well. and I think it's reinforced by a lot of um, a, a lot of cultures and traditions. If you look back at, um, uh, I definitely intend to to write a book on a lot of um, a lot of folk tales and how and how, and how they relate to self protection. Coming back to that whole mythology thing, and uh, if you look, but if you look at a lot of them, they're all built on this sort of you know village sort of mentality of like you know anyone outside the village is a danger. You know, I mean, we don't want you know other tribes. Mm. If you know what I mean. So you've got all these stories of strangers, and if you notice, it's nearly always the stranger, or, or, or the very best, the cuckoo, the step parent, or something like that, is the villain. You know, what I mean, <laughs> cast in a lot of folk tales. Yeah. So again, this reinforces into our culture this whole whole notion of this, the person who strikes from the shadows. You know, this this, this shadowy figure. Yeah. And again, it's reinforced in our media all the time. You know, you know, what do you see? You know, newspapers. You know, they use this um, really irresponsible sort of language. You know, they they call people beasts and monsters. And you know, whenever you see some, you know, some some criminal, you know. Uh, you know there's a you know there's a paedophile or a child abuser or a, or, um, a killer of some some description they're always described in these um, fantastical um, animalistic ways which which makes them alien and and therefore it doesn't serve the purpose from self-protection that That's the attack right. It's not going. It's not going to be a monster. It's going to be someone you know. It's going to be likely be someone you know, and not somebody who looks unusual. <laughs> That's it. Except by you know, you always see this thing is yeah. he was such a quiet guy. I had no uh, yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, obviously, no, exactly. <laughs> you obviously, see, I, I do always hear that the next door neighbour goes, "I never knew he was hiding all those bodies under the floor." <laughs> and you know, he goes, "Well, I, I would have think no." <laughs> kind of like that's how he got away with doing it again i'm sure yours is the same is i can certainly say that i have had people uh with in my life that i've had contact with in various ways that um surprise me greatly when you find out what yes. they actually were capable of oh yeah as you say they're not beasts they're not other and they are very very good at, at, at blending into people that i would I thought, you know, this guy's a really good guy. And I can think of three or four examples immediately who are now in prison for various horrific offences. Me too. But, you know what yeah. I mean? That, that, that's it, because the, the, the camouflage is, is, is so good. You know what I mean? That, that's what they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're good at being, uh, being able to do. So as you say, it's not it's, the stranger that poses the threat. Yeah, um, it's, and it's that, and it's that comfort, isn't it? It's it's, it's that comfort again. It's, it's a lot easier for people to teach the idea that because it's comfortable to get yeah. the idea that the monsters they are that it's not the it's not actually um, you know it's like um, uh, um, you know it, 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 it's it's going to be um, the cousin or the uncle or the yeah. or you know you know you know this is the you know the, the horror the, the you know the horrifying idea um, and and but to understand that I mean you teach children boundaries you teach children per- the, the importance of personal space i mean that's that's a real important thing and it's and it's a difficult thing to get across to kids because they're in each other's personal space all the time at school that's what they do can and I, boundaries can I, can I just jump in on that one because um yeah. one thing I, I would like to get back to is just this idea of um how we yeah. teach this to kids without traumatizing kids sure so, so but, but i just want to you, you may not remember but the, and it takes us right back to the beginning, but I, I did sit on one of your grading panels uh, on one occasion. Yeah. I've been, been teaching during the day, went over yeah. to yours, and I was an independent on your grading panel. And 
uh, something that you have on your, uh, or did have at the time, your syllabus, which I've got stolen from mine, is this idea of getting them in and asking questions around their understanding and everything else. And I remember this this young girl who, um, she, I guess she was maybe 12, 13, no older than that, uh, and, and you asked her to explain the fence. And for those that don't know, Jeff, that's Jeff Thompson's term for using your arms in a subtle way to create a physical barrier between you and the other person, you know, during the dialogue stages. So you're managing the distance in case it all kicks off. And you asked her to explain the fence. So she explained it very physically, and then she dropped into, but she says, what I'm doing is I'm guiding my boundaries. And this doesn't just apply to my physical boundaries. This applies to my emotional boundaries as well. It's my space. It's owned by me. No one's allowed to emotionally or physically get within that boundary without my permission. Now, I'm not doing that service because she said it far more eloquently than I just have. But I remember sitting there thinking, man, I wish, you know, that, that like if Matt was my daughter, I'd be so proud to hear her say that. A sense of entitlement to what was hers and what was unacceptable for others to encroach on was amazing. So I can say firsthand that you've, you've definitely done that because I was witness to it. So if you'd like to expand on that a bit more about this idea of giving them this sense of personal space, but then in the same thing, not making them feel the family or people they know or making them paranoid, but, but this idea that they have a that they have a, an ownership of themselves that no one else is allowed yeah. to encroach on, you know? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I got some of the inspiration for that when, with, with when I was, um, you know, reading things with with uh, child charities and they talk about um uh you know uh, appropriate you know it, things down to the sense of like appropriate touching inappropriate touching you know and explaining things like that to you know you know you know to children you know that you know these are your areas these are your things and it's who you let into your life and who you don't let into your life and you've got a, a chance to do that and uh, again it was um in, you know, it, again, that, that, that's exactly the point. I mean, it's like that, that was always the danger I said with the stranger danger idea was, um, which is a, as a comparison to that, you know, stranger danger, you know, uh, you know, it's just a, it's, it's a gimmick term and it doesn't make sense when you hold it, hold it up to, to children or to explain them what a stranger is. I've seen people try to explain stranger danger in a way. And even then it's got, it's full of holes. You know what I mean? The idea is like, just, just scrap it, get rid of it. So the same thing with, like, with boundary setting, you can't, you know, um, you can't just say, right, this is your fence. You don't let anybody into this personal space. And you go, well, what happens if it's, you know, it's my friend? What happens if it's this? You know, once I want to give someone a hug, once, and you go, well, that's, you know, that's, uh, um, that's fine because they're not behaving in a way uh, their behavior will dictate whether you let them into that space. And also, um, what you decide is, um, um, is, is allowable within that space. So their behavior can be down to what you consider to be acceptable, what you consider to be acceptable. You know? And we would go through different examples and say, is this acceptable behavior? Is that acceptable behavior? You know, Or you might be feeling uncomfortable and you just don't want to be touched. You just don't want someone to come into your personal space at the time. And you, you, then you own that space. You own that area with you. No one has the right... To, to, to take that away from you and it's uh uh you know you know immediately the naysayers come in and start going oh, what happens if they you know they don't want their parents to come in or they're going to start lining their friends up and all this sort of stuff and you're going well you, you're giving them not enough credit you know what i mean you know when, when you know when you start giving different examples and you, you have a discussion we used to do a lot of this in the, in the lessons where where we would cover something and then um somebody would stand up and you know again this was very important for developing the confidence you know you'd have people you know would stand up and they they would give a demonstration with another person about something and then everybody else would have a discussion on what was right and what was wrong with it and they would either have a chance to defend what they did or or, or take it on board and, and and I'd mediate it if you know what I mean and, and that would be that would be a really good way for them to understand self protection from uh, you know a very 
organic level, you know, very, it becomes an outgrowth of the person, you know, that the idea that it's very real then, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's not just the fence and, yeah. um, yeah, which which has become like this sort of zombie stance that people have you know yeah. often adopt, and it's become a stance in itself. Yeah. Uh, which was, and, never, uh, was never yeah. intended to be, of course. I mean, that's never. part of the problem is never. that when if you learn it direct from the source, it was always mobile and very subtle. If you see Definitely. it pictured in a magazine, it, looks it, it wasn't even it wasn't even the hands. I mean, this is just it. When I was discussing it, you know, with Jeff and Matty, and uh, you know, it's Matty Evans and Jeff Thompson, Al Pete, and that they all of them described it as a concept. You know, yeah. so it's, it's a you know, I, you know, when anyone used to use the word, and this is the defense technique, I cringed because even the word technique wasn't was 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 too much for me. It's, it's a concept. It's any it's any means that you can use to distance yourself. And even Jeff's you know video that he did his first video on the fence. He even uses a table as an example of an object that could yeah. be used as a fence. Anything that keeps positioning you. Appreciate that we mainly will, we're mainly talking about mobile, subtle hand gestures being used as a fence, and that's what we use most of the time, and that's what we do most of our training from. But but even drilling it right down to what the principle of the fence is, it's anything that we is used to keep a, as a boundary and allowing us a chance to preempt what they're going to do. And this is why it's all down to, to those behaviours. And um. And I think the whole thing, you know, the, the preemption thing is um, I remember discussions with Peter Constant when I was um, interviewing him actually about you know, how I would see a lot of martial arts seminars, self-defense seminars would be teaching like preemptive striking. Um, but bear in mind, I've taught preemptive striking to children, always have taught preemptive striking to children. I've been taught in front of head, head, uh, headmasters, headmistresses, you know, um, uh, children's charities have uh, taught preemptive striking and they've all accepted my rationale for teaching preemptive striking because you know if you tell people straight off oh i teach children preemptive striking that sounds horrendous you know what i mean it's like the idea oh my god you're going to teach children how to hit first and and without any sort of until but when you see the way that you explain it and teach it and what they learn before the preemption then it makes perfect sense but anyway the whole point of the preemption is that um it it, it, it teaches proactivity and, uh, you know, and I know it's a bit of a buzzword these days, so I, I try to stay away from it, but it's difficult to really find a, an equivalent for it. But the idea of always being on the front foot, this is yeah. what Peter, Peter teaches all the time, always being on the front foot. But you should be on the front foot in the way that your your behavior should be on the front foot. You know, the idea is that you've just been approached by somebody. And that's that's key, isn't it? You're approached. Mm. You know, this is often the thing. You know, people talk about don't talk to strangers. It's not that it's, it, you know, mo in majority of cases, unless you're talking about the sort of Hansel and Gretel honey trap situation, in most instances, it's your, it's the child or the, or the adult being approached by somebody. It's very rare that the child approaches somebody who is the danger. You know what I mean? It's, it, you know, it, you know, they will, you know, in many ways, they'll instinctively go towards someone that presents that, that they'll, that they'll quite, you know, rationally, um, have decided that that person is is a chances are they're a safe person you know a mother with children you know a woman walking around with children pushing a pram or something like that is more likely to be you know a, a safe point i appreciate you know there's been plenty of examples the moore's murderers um uh, a classic example of that where, where where a woman has been used to lure a child but again it's the woman approaching the child not the child approaching the person and uh, there's a wonderful thing that's um a good a good test that you can do with children again which promotes good awareness and good behavioral skills and uh, uh that uh, is described in one of gavin de becker's books um that, that uh, you, you, you get a child to um, go around a supermarket 
and and ask people where certain things are. Find out where this is. Find out where the baked beans are. Find out where the vegetables are. Find out where the cereals are. Whatever you're going to pick, where's the milk? You know. And what you do is you get a child to go and approach people. And then they find out the information, obviously under your supervision, you know, to begin with anyway. And then they come back to you and you, you then ask them, say, why did you pick that person? Why that one and not anyone else? And all this sort of thing. And it, it starts teaching them to hone their skills, to do the right selection. But it, most importantly, and again, this comes back down to the why I've titled the book, When Parents Aren't Around, it, gives, it empowers them, you know, it empowers them to take responsibility. Everything about self-protection was all the time with it was always the point I was making with children was like, you have to take responsibility. This is all about you taking charge of a situation, you know, and whether, you know, you know, what allows somebody into your personal space, what doesn't allow someone in your personal space, um, why no one has a right, you know, to make physical contact to you when you don't want them to, you know, to, you know, children need to be able to make a risk assessment. But I think the important thing, as I said, exactly, is putting them in a, a position where they, they take charge of a situation. I mean, if you're in a crisis, you have to take charge of the situation mm. quickly. If you look at first aid, you look at any emergency situation, it's all about trying to take charge and manage that situation. Yeah, yeah you know, it's uh, w- w- whatever way it is, even if it's just getting yourself into a position of safety, you're still managing that situation. You're not you're not just reacting to the demands of that situation. You are you're doing the best you can to take control of that situation. And, and I think that's a good analogy as well. So, you know, the, the idea that you are um, first aid, like so yeah. I I've done my first aid training and believe I'm fully competent to do the things I've done. I've helped people stop choking and stuff like that, you know, but I, I wouldn't dream of thinking, right, okay, I will now take over this person's long-term medical care. No. You know, you, know, you realize, you know, I, I have confidence within my skill set. And, and, and I guess yes. what you're saying there is that you're trying to instill that in the, the children as well. Feel confident, yeah. feel enabled, but beware of your limitations and don't step beyond them. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Well, this is just it. I mean, th- th- I mean, uh, again, uh, you learn from your mistakes. And I remember um, seeing uh, we were doing. Um, I was doing again a lot of stuff. I learned from things like gradings. You know, when I, when I bring independent people in and and see how kids responded under under pressure when it wasn't me who was. Um, just running the show and, and let them do things. And I remember seeing them, uh, um, uh, not only the incident I described them when we were having our discussion uh, before about pad work, but also uh, with throws. I mean, we were coming into a part of the part of training where they were just demonstrating throws is just part of, you know, their skill set, you know, it's a, you know, it's a functional, practical skill set. Mm. Uh, and they, and they'd learned, they, they were doing that. And then the next thing that we did was we went back to self-protection, so self-defense training. Um, and in this, funnily enough, this again influenced something that, that, that I would do with adults, um, part of the influence that I would do with adults. Um, they suddenly did a, a, a what I call a, a code white test, again, taken from the Cooper Color Code. The idea was that uh, you close your eyes in a room and then you respond I don't know if you saw that when I did the grading with you, but the, and the, the kids would respond to a start or response. They'd either get a physical prompt or a verbal prompt. They'd open their eyes and they'd respond to what what, what was happening in front of them. Yep. Um, and, of course, it should always end with them running to an exit point yep. uh, and, uh, you know, or, or accessing an exit point. So we're doing this and uh, their eyes are all closed. And they bear in mind that prior to that, they'd just done, they'd just done their, they'd done their strike training, they'd done their grappling training, and they demonstrated their abilities in that. And now we've gone back to self-protection. And now adults are going around doing the pressure test. You know, the children all got their eyes closed and they're all going to be styled by it. And I think it's, I think I used to have like one 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 kid used to come and do it as well, um, so they'd get different sizes and things like that to deal with. 
and nearly every one of the children tried to go in for a hip throw. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. My mouth just hit the ground. I was going, oh, there's something clearly wrong here. And then I, had to, I actually had to stop everyone because I thought, well, you know, where this is going at the moment, everyone's going to get failed. You know? <laughs> you know, you've all done a wonderful grading up to this point. And it's always my real problem um and again i give rory miller credit for influencing me on on this one um uh, that you know students try to impress their instructors you know and this is what i really really tried to eliminate when i came to like grading people and and training in general you know my attitude is like stop trying to don't try and please me do what 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 you should do should be objectively effective should be objectively effective should be objectively serve the purpose don't have it the thing that i want we know that i want to see so so i had to stop them all and just tell them all the whole lot of them you know you know this is stop thinking like this we're not doing grappling now and at the moment what do you think and i had to say to everyone so do you think that you're going to be able to do that on this fully grown adult you're going to be able to put him into a hip throw as soon as he comes or, or, or more importantly do you think that's the appropriate response you know so i want you to all stop have a stop and think. Imagine what's going to happen here. This is a life and death situation. And, you know, I tried to not, you know, mold them into doing what they needed to do, you know, um, but, it, but give them an idea of like, you know, to change your perception about what's going on there. And it's not to really, you know, you realize that, you know, people will automatically start doing the skills that they've previously done. Do you know what I mean? How it influences. And, and that influenced me to teach me, I call the switch where, where, where when I do training, I'll get people on the pads and I'll go sport. I'll go sports self-defense to be crude about it. That's exactly yeah. what I do. And I, and the emphasis changes, you know, it, it, how they deal with something uh, it, it changes. Exactly how I do it. You know, there's, there's the martial arts and when we're doing it, arts for art's sake or yeah. interest or for fun. Then we've got yeah. the fighting, which is the techniques we'd use for out fighting each other and dueling. And then we've got the yeah. self-defense based stuff. And I'm just like yeah. you, I'll make sure. That, and if people watch my YouTube videos, they can hear me do it. I'll say yeah. this is a fighting drill. Or this is a fighting pad work drill, not a self-defense based pad drill. And make sure yeah. to fully understand the objective. Because then, like you, you can set these drills, say, this yeah. is the objective I wish to achieve. And if they fail yeah. to achieve the objective, you go, right, that yeah. you throw, you've just tried against that guy five times taller than you. Yeah. Was, was that the right <laughs> technique to try and use for this objective? And the objective, yeah. no, it wasn't. Right, well, it might yeah. be the right thing when you're trying someone of your own size and we're trying to work for the, the, the throw, which takes us full circle yeah. back to the, the training methods again, Jamie, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, and again, again, kids, kids highlight that all the time. And uh, again, it's, it's, uh, um, and again, it, 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 again, a lot of the time it would, it, it kept bringing me back to the idea about, you know, what are the priorities when it comes to teaching someone self protection, and things like, you know, exit, you know, accessing exiting points, um, and that kind of thing. Sort of, you know, I'd, I would say children at one starts one end, um, weapon defense at the other end, kind of highlight, start telling you. What you know, they escalate a situation in terms of a risk assessment. They escalate a situation to like, well, you know, is this really a great idea as a tactic? You know, do you know what I mean? When the you know, and is the priority getting obscured? You know, when you start dealing with people the same weight and height or physical fitness as yourself, like that, it's very easy to start. Particularly when you're talking about, and when you're talking about the area of self protection, it's very easy to start doing things that are of a higher risk that don't need to be there, you know, that, that that don't have the right payback. And I, and again. I, I mean, and I thought about children and and weaponed uh, awareness. I was doing um doing a course um, where I was teaching um, where I had to teach uh, you know uh, weapon awareness courses, and it was all the instructors all had experience in martial arts. They're all experienced instructors, but they were going for their instructorship in teaching 
weapon awareness. Bear in mind, this is a weapon awareness, you know, course. Mm. Excellent, ex- excellent course. Very, very good. Huge, you know, really up-to-date uh, information and methods. But what I did notice was that um, when it came to us all, we all then had to give our own presentations or our own, just do our own drills, you know, at different times we've had to do different things as it's been updated. And, you know, great course, as I said, you know, so it's not it's not a, a comment on the instructor by any stretch of the imagination. You know, one of the best I could, I could come across. But the a lot of the other instructors that were there, they came to be doing, they said, right, you've got to do a physical response to a knife attack that you would teach to people who've got no background in dealing with weapons as their first point of call without ex- with, with only a few exceptions. And there were, there were a few exceptions, um, you know, that, you know, could give, you know, the likes of, you know, people like Tony Hughes, for example, really, really good self-protection instructors and that fantastic responses to it alan kane brilliant responses to it obviously you know who are on, they're all people that are on the course with me um and of course as i said the course itself was great but then but a good percentage of them were teaching pretty much which could be described as one step yeah. um and so many people train whenever it comes to defense against a, a knife people train someone stepping forward doing a, a sort of a fencing style lunge with a knife and then you responding with something that looked like either something that was taken out of an Aikido drill or out of a, or, or a Hubud even. And I'm thinking this is, and, I, and so my attitude to that, and this is how I start a lot of my foundation training. And again, there's a bit of inspiration from Carl Tanswell here, but again, and that was like, okay, well, I want every single person, the second you see, a, the second you, you suspect someone has got a blade and they're approaching you or some form of weapon approaching you to raise the alarm and find your exit point. Mm. And that's what I want you to train every time we begin, you know, a, a sort of weapon drill, um, because that's what I want my daughter to do. You know, I want my daughter as a child to do. I don't want my daughter to think immediately I'm going to go tackle that knife man. Then the next thing I want you to do, if 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 the if your immediate exit is blocked and you're not getting obvious any help, is to be looking for a, you know a, an item of incidental weaponry or shield in order to protect yourself with. So that's before we even get on to anything that remotely resembles engaging the knife man and and, and uh, bringing the weapon under control. Absolutely. Which um, I see, I've got four drills that I teach. Um, yeah. and not one disarm or anything like that, just four drills, the majority of which are about, like, as you say, just how to quickly exit. So I always remember, I got an email once from a guy who told me he'd been there. he was sitting at a train station late at night, he'd seen two guys uh, coming towards him, he'd spotted that one of them had a knife out in his hand, he believed, he couldn't see one of the other one's hands, so he believed he may have had a weapon, uh, he dropped his bags and he ran off. Uh, mm. So he didn't get hurt. So, but he then emailed me saying, I feel like such a failure. I'm a second down in Kokushin Karate. I feel yeah. like such a coward. I should have done something. Uh, I've yeah. trained martial arts that long, and I feel that I've been let down. And I wrote back saying, you did that perfectly. That was perfect self-defense. Yeah. You could not have done yeah. that better. And he no. wrote me, yeah, well, it's kind of to say, but I don't really feel that way, and blah, blah, blah. And it goes back to that if all you've got to hammer thing. So all he had yeah. was a set of fighting skills. So when he didn't employ those, the, the kind of that, that, that black dog of depression, was worse because he felt bad for having run away because a 20-something fighter, that's not what you yeah. do. You know, you stand your ground and, and, and fight. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. I think it's, it's always it's what, what's the most effective way to achieve this objective and the most effective it's way funny. to get yeah. is not to be there, you know. It, it's funny you should just mention that as an example, and certainly um, because the black dogs addressed in my in, in, in my book in, in part of the post fight incident and like reporting incidents because obviously you teach children the importance of reporting any, any incident or any almost incident, um, should we say you know make sure you report it to adults that you can trust you know parents obviously teachers etc you know p- positions of authority that you can talk to. The, 
at, at very early on in the book, there's a chapter dedicated to fighting because I thought I'll get that out of the way straight away. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, what is, you know, because a lot of this is often, as you say, it's confused. You use it with your martial map. It's confused sometimes with self protection. There are elements of it that we can use that influence um, self-defense techniques. Um, but as a as a whole, um, fighting doesn't have a place in in, in self protection. You know, as a, as a, as you know, if we're talking about the subject of self protection, it doesn't have a place. Fighting is is uh, <clears throat> so. And, and again, this is often the thing you know, trying to get it across to kids. Hopefully, getting it across to them, you know, before they become adults, the idea that you you're not in a tribal situation where we're all fighting for mating rights, we're all fighting for who's going to be the, you know the boss of the tribe or or protecting your your um, your reputation and all this sort of thing. You know, this should never get confused with a you know with a, with a with a life and death situation or any sort of potentially harmful situation. You know, it's it's not um, you know getting rid of that, getting rid of that that mentality. You know, it's a um, uh, again you know it's very very important you know you know with children again it's, it's also important with adults as well uh, you know it's uh you know it's good enough for ricky hatton to give up his his uh his, his, his golden watch or, um over in hong kong when someone pulled a knife on him i think it's good enough for the rest of us well, he's a smart man yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the thing you know what whereas um yeah. again it's it's that wrong solution not that fighting's bad you know there's nothing wrong with no. training for that no absolutely it's not just, at all. It's, it's just when you, you confuse it too so who sounds like an excellent book Jimmy. so is it aimed i think it's aimed at parents and and yes yeah. yeah it begins with a it begins with a there's a chapter at the beginning and the chapter at the end that is clearly aimed at parents um because the idea is that is that the, the child reads it and then the parents get involved uh, um that they read it as well you know because it has to be a collaborative effort when i teach child self-protection i, I want the adults on board um i've had too many too many cases where um i've taught children um actually not too many cases but enough cases to, to convince me that when i've been teaching children and it's at odds with what they're learning back at home then i'm losing the battle you know what yeah. i mean it's it's i i, I can't I, I can't win that fight i have to be able to the parents have to understand why i teach what i teach why you know what needs to be trained what needs to be taught what they need to be doing uh, they need to be behind me it's the same as any any good teacher you know what i mean at school you know this is no good at uh, uh you know if, if kids are learning one thing at school and then they go back home and everything else is the complete opposite you know it's you know, in school you're being taught certain subjects are important or certain things are important to learn you go back home and your parents are you know saying well you know i don't see any reason why you need to read and write i don't see any reason why you know education is important and things like that and as we know th th this does happen even in this day and age even in the developed world you know you, you, you've still there's some households that will contradict what the school is teaching uh, there needs to be a you know there often needs to be a, a harmony you know and i need to be able to say and then also i need to make sure that obviously the parents are comfortable with what i'm teaching so the book is aimed at um children aged between um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight yeah. to thirteen. Uh, you know, it's, it's the age group for the children. That's written in that way. Yeah. Um, uh, but there is a chapter for the adults at the beginning, which is perfectly acceptable for the children to read. Obviously, it's it's it's, it's uh, um, there's nothing in there that uh, you know they wouldn't want to read, but but it's clearly written for the adults. But of course, there's there's several exercises at the end which you know adults can do. So it's you know this the last chapter is you know when you know when parents are around you know in, in italics are around so i you know what can parents do you know and um there are things that you can do. There's, there's lots of awareness skill uh, drills and exercises and games that you can play with children, um, and uh, you know and that makes it part of their education. You know, otherwise it just becomes, you know, learning a few tricks as we you know, as we've heard enough times. You know, can yeah. you teach? You know, that's the old again. That's the old martial arts myth, isn't it? You know, you know, learn a few. You know, can you teach me a few few tricks and then I'll be all right in self defence. <laughs> you know, and, and, 
it's uh, you know it doesn't it's got to be like you know they've got to make certain changes in their attitude they've got to you know embody certain things and i need the parents behind me so yes yeah it is yeah it's targeted at the family even though specifically it's for it's for the children but it's definitely it, it involves adults yeah so when when parents aren't around by jamie club with double b that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're you're on Facebook and Twitter as well, Auntie Jamie. So if people want to yes. follow and get more information, have you got the details to hand so that you can so people can? Follow yes, you on absolutely. Those? I mean, I mean, our website is uh, is uh, Club Chimera. So C L U B Chimera C H I M E R A dot com. So Club Chimera dot com. Um, again, if you Google my name, Jamie Club um, C L U B. You'll find the links on there. There's the Facebook link and the Twitter link um, and the YouTube link are all off um, the are all off the website. Um, <clears throat> there are links straight there. But uh, um, yeah, on on uh, on Facebook, there's a Club Chimera uh, Facebook page. It's you know, um, facebook.com forward slash Club Chimera again. C L U B C H I M E R A um, or Twitter. It's the same thing as well. It'll be um, it, it, the, the handle is Club Chimera C L U B um, C H I M E R A. Awesome. Well, I re- really do appreciate you taking the time to do this. As I, as I suspected we would, um, I think because you, you and I can, I mean, we can both talk for long periods of time. <laughs> so so we, we'd said uh, two hours and we're now at uh, two and a half. <laughs> so um, uh, at the time we had it all up down and you know there'll be, there'll be yeah, plenty of good content for people so uh, i'm very grateful to you for because say we've had hundreds of conversations like this and, and i always yes. find them insightful and i always come away for it with a, a new perspective and, and things i've got to got to think about so um i'm really glad that you took the time and that we can record one of these and uh, share them with the listeners so thanks very much jamie i appreciate it a lot Thank you very much, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, let's hope your subscriptions don't go down too much now after this one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I said in my introduction to part one, I think this has been one of my favourite podcasts ever. Uh, You know, I've been doing this for whatever it is now, 10, 12 years, something like that, a long time. And uh, really did enjoy putting this one together. There's just so much good information in there. Jamie's such a knowledgeable guy, um, enthusiastic, good communicator, ceaseless researcher, always questioning everything that you know he comes across, uh, and just brings it together in such a holistic, solid package. I love Jamie's stuff. Really do love it. Uh, obviously, check out Jamie's books. And as I mentioned, Jamie's got his own podcast now, which is something I'm delighted about. I'm really pleased he's doing that, uh, which is uh, Protecting the Front Line. He's the Jamie Club podcast. Uh, other podcasts that you need to be checking out as well is you've got Gretchen Carlson's uh, Marshall Journeys podcast. is so cool. Uh, you've got Chris Wilder's uh, podcasts, of course, which are absolutely excellent. You've got Tim Smith doing the Kung Fu podcast. Uh, we've got my friend Lee Sims doing the Striking Thought. Sports podcasts, you know, there's Sensei Ando's podcast, there's the Karate Cafe guys, uh, there's Wim Demir's podcast, there's just so much good stuff, you know, so if you like podcasts and you like, you know, martial arts, there's a lot of good good podcasts out there now, so be sure to check them out. Uh, I'll be back with another episode of mine shortly. That'll be the podcast on the law. So that'll be discussing things that we need to consider when constructing self-defense programs so we don't end up on the wrong side of the law. Be discussing mistakes people make, uh, when to consider the law, uh, how to integrate into training programs. Uh, I think you'll find it interesting. And as part of that, I'm hoping to do a quick interview with Lee Sims, who has written books on uh, self-defense law. He's what Lee's professionally 
is. You know, he works in the legal profession, and of course, you know, he's a, a fourth dan black belt in karate. Has a black belt under me in, in what I do. Uh, really like Lee's stuff. Again, check out his podcast. Um, but uh, again, I think you'll really enjoy that uh, that one because the law is such an important topic, and it's normally just explained away with with platitudes and lip service. So, so we'll try and get into some depth on it. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening to this episode. I'll be back with a new one soon. Uh, in the interim, stay lucky, and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, take care now. Bye bye.